It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is Jerome Jennings, a multi-talented drummer, activist, band leader, composer, sideman, and an educator. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, uh, Alan. I've seen your work and see what you do, and I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. It, it's a mutual admiration society. There is a great deal of not only uh, enthusiasm for your talent, but also a respect for it and all the things that you do. And having said that, let, let me begin by asking you, you know, a lot of times when people are in the business, when you publish your biographical information, you always have these descriptives of things that are reflective of who and what you are. But uh, in yours, it starts out as drummer activist. And it, it's interesting that the word activist comes in the second position. So are you a drummer who happens to be an activist or an activist who happens to be a drummer? It's a great question, Alan. My, my consciousness has, I've always leaned towards empathy and, and, and sympathetic air for those who are vulnerable, right, in our society. Being from where, where my mom is, is from, where my family's from, I just got off the phone with my grandma, she'll be 90 soon. She's from Birmingham, Alabama. I have a, a great auntie who's from uh, Camp Hill, Alabama. My mom's from Camp Hill, Alabama. And, and my great aunt, is, she'll be, she just turned 95. They they've always been vocal about what what's what you know life our current past and current uh, situations and social social and political situations. So I, I've it's always been a part of of who I am. I'm not I haven't always been so vocal about it. So I would say I've I've always been conscious and aware. But the past seven years. Or so, I've been actively seeking information and knowledge, particularly along the lines of black feminism and the feminist movement. And uh, that has politicized me and energized me. So I, I guess I would say I've been more of an activist who uses his music and uses his platform to shine light on things that I would like to change socially. Well, you know, I think that's only in keeping with the times that we're all going through. And I think music is always reflective of the times that we live in. Back in the 60s, there was a lot of message in music. And well, some people didn't know that, whether it was subliminal to them or whether it was in your face. There was a lot of message in music in the 60s. Uh, and then you bring it to 2020 here. And as of late, uh, there seems to be a lot more message in music. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would. I would say so. Cross genres, quote unquote. I, I think. I think people are becoming a bit more activated because egregious acts are, are are still happening, and people are a bit tired of seeing it and want to shine light 
on it, you know, using using their platform, right? Much as the camera did for uh, folks during the, the civil rights movement, right? So you you want to use our you know, use use your voice, and, and and people are starting to do it more so now. And it's a it's a moment. And hopefully, after the moment has passed, people will still feel activated to continue being advocates for change, right? Yes, that's what I hope. Indeed, and I, I think, again, as I said, uh, it's, it's being reflected in a lot of music. We recently did uh, an interview with Regina Carter, and her latest release is called Swing States, where she focused on the swing states, the battleground, for the uh, past election that we just went through. And I think it had an impact in many ways, and as does she. And also, we, we talked with Alonzo Demetrius, who is a uh, fine trumpeter, young man, a, a rising star in the business, a graduate of Berkeley College, and he put together an album uh, that was live from the prison nation, and it was reflective of all of the trials and tribulations uh, that is going on within the black community. So I, I, I think that you can and do have an impact on reaching people through music because it's a great way to get that conversation either started or by bringing people together to start talking about things like this. Absolutely. I think it's a great I think it's a great thing that people are doing that. And people are doing it and getting a and getting a bit of attention as well. And people and Alan to be fair, people have been doing that, right? Mm -hmm. Not it's not something that's that's quote unquote new. It's just we're in a moment right now where it's the power structure, have you will, are, are a little bit more tolerant of hearing these voices because the country is under fire as a whole. No, and it truly is. There, there's no question about it. And it's the, a sign of the times, if you will. And that's, I think, more reflective. And I appreciate your saying that, that it's not just that it hasn't been going on. It's just more in the spotlight or more on the forefront these days, just because it's beginning to affect all of us. And I think all of us are coming together to maybe achieve a, a better life and happiness for all of us uh, concerned, whether it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, either politically or socially, it's just time we, we, we come together more and just... Uh, respect and honor each other and, and have some fun and be together and, and be respectful. Yeah, I think this is the motivation for uh, many artists who, who are you know, taking institutions and various power structures to, to task and saying, and, and saying exactly what, what, what you just mentioned, Alan. You know, it's, it's time for a change and it's time to become aware of things that we, we have not been privy to pay attention to. Now it's time to pay attention. The time of asking is a bit passe at this point. It's more of a demand. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, my music has, has always done that. And it started at least more notably uh, last November uh, in 2019 uh, when you released Solidarity. Now that particular release took on a different focus other than just political or centered on uh, any election of any kind. 
but instead it was something that uh, was reflective of, uh, I guess, an inspiration from your wife, uh, Naomi Extra, who is a a freelance writer, a a poet, a feminist, and she uh, shed a little light on the subject for you with respect to what her work is. Absolutely. She's, I call her a minister of information because she, she introduced me to some things that uh, I needed to explore more. When you spend most of your time with someone, you want to get to know them and you want to get to know, you know, where they're from, what they're, what they're, where they sit in, in our social climate, where, where, where they are, you know, and it's different for me than it is for her. And vice versa. And I wanted to explore that more so. Uh, just getting to understand her a little more. And in turn, getting to understand my mom a little more. Getting to understand my other women, females in my family. And also understanding where I, where I fit in our society as pertaining to her. Mm-hmm. Right? Am I helping the situation or am I contributing to the problems that can occur socially? Right? Being in a, a patriarchal society. I, I'm sure... It, we can we can all agree on that across nationalities across races we can all we can all agree with that we live in a patriarchal society and uh the more i study the more i watch the more i listen uh these are things that i felt needed to again shine light on to be shine light on and i i felt like i needed to put that in my in my music and in my art and it was, uh, I, I think, a goal of yours through that release to talk about race and sexuality and gender. And that was brought to the surface by a lot of the uh, tracks on the recording uh, that you put together. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the things because you engaged yourself uh, with with some of those specific subjects. Like, for example, tell us about uh, Marielle Franco and how that piece came together. Okay, so Marielle Franco, I, I learned about her. You know, she's a, a, a councilwoman from Rio de Janeiro, from, from the favelas of uh, Rio de Janeiro. And she was a very intelligent woman who went to university and saw a lot of ills that that goes on in in her community and decided to become to to run for city for, for councilwoman and won very vocal very powerful voice but she was a queer woman of color who wanted to do away with a lot of the of the of the ills that we see across the board homophobia isms sex isms she was an advocate for, for kids, for children's rights, for poor people, poor people campaigns. And she just, she spoke to the people. And unfortunately she was, she was killed in 2018. And when I heard her speak, I understood the sentiment from caption, but I was so moved by what she was about. And the fact that she took a chance while being a very popular person, she didn't, she did, she was unbendable, which I, I guess meant that she was expendable. So I wrote a tune for her, right? I wrote a tune for her and um, we go through many grooves. We go through it at least seven different, different grooves, right? Mm-hmm. Just show the, 
the versatility in somebody like her to be able to communicate with all likes of people. there is there's more translated accounts of her of her speaking and transcripts of, of her speeches the case has been opened up to try to find who, who who assassinated her so clearly her influence has reached far beyond where she's from that little that village where she's from in Rio de Janeiro and and I, I just wanted to pay homage to her I wanted to pay homage to her so was this as a result of discussions with your wife uh, in terms of bringing these issues to your attention? Now, Mary L.A. Franco was one that I, that I discovered on my own doing research. Now, Reese Taylor, that was a woman that I discovered through, through my wife. We went and saw an independent film entitled uh, The Rape of Reese Taylor. So I saw a woman in the documentary who was extremely vocal and her scholarship really moved me and her passion to side with Reese and her family. And this woman named Danielle McGuire, she wrote a book entitled At the Dark End of the Street. And my, my, my wife knew, knew who she was, knew her. And she said, yeah, check, check out, check out. Danielle McGuire's book. So I checked it out. That was somebody who my wife hit me to. And from there, it just snowballed. It snowballed. So Reese's Lament is what you were referring to with Reese Taylor. Absolutely. And then you also paid tribute to an Arkansas senator. Tell us about that. Senator Flowers? Yeah, Senator Stephanie Flowers. So I heard her speak in a, a, a hall meeting, Arkansas senators, you know, town meeting. And she was so passionate about the stand your, your ground bill. Basically, there, there, there was a fight or flight clause in that bill that they were discussing whether to pass or not. If someone has the ability to get away from the situation, should they, have, should they be required to do that before shooting? 
a deadly shot, a fatal shot. And they were going back and forth, back and forth about this. And she was she she brought up instances and situations that would allow this particular clause to work in the favor of vulnerable people, poor people, black people. And the other members of, of, of the Senate would not listen. They would not listen to her. And the clip that most people saw that went viral was a clip of her speaking very passionately about why that bill should not be passed or should or or that clause should be in in the bill and she kind of lost it she she lost it her passion for her, her you know the thoughts of, of of her son and other black boys and girls being being uh being at the at the short end of of this of this law this stand your ground law of course we've seen it before and Trayvon Martin being i think he his his case being the most uh most visible she went on a rant and a passionate rant and i felt like i wanted to be in the room with her i felt like i wanted to be there with her because she was the only one that you could see on camera that was uh it felt like she was alone at that moment and i i have an archivist who actually sent me the entire meeting which was about three and a half hours i watched the entire thing so that that short clip that we saw was was actually it was built up from about three hours of being ignored, three hours of not being taken serious. And I actually put a video out showing a, a, a bit more of, of the clip outside of her rant. I showed a little bit more of what happened minutes before, before she said what she needed to say. And you hear laughter, you hear some joking. That's not acceptable. When you're dealing with people's lives and you're dealing with laws that can, that can actually affect people's lives, right? Yes. Citizens being able to shoot other citizens and not retreat before shooting that shot. It's not something to laugh about. And she let them know. So you actually used spoken word on that particular track of uh, the senator. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be as quick as I can, as quick as it takes to kill somebody, I guess. You want me to be that quick. But, you know, as uh, Miss Fletcher pointed out, and it doesn't take much to look on the local news every night and see how many black kids, black boys, black men are being killed with these stand-your-ground defenses that these people raise, then they get off. So I take issue with that. I'm the only person here of color, okay? And I wanted to play, I wanted to mirror what she was saying as a as a pseudo A-man, but also keep an ostinato pattern in my feet. Right? Mm-hmm. Which made it very difficult. It took it took some time to, to, to work that up. So tell me when you were assembling uh, the personnel for this recording, was there uh, a a period of time where you had to get a buy-in from everyone to do this kind of uh, a release? <laughs> It's a great question, Alan. <laughs> Leading up to it, I did have some reservations because like I mentioned before, this is this is a learning experience for me and I had to figure out how I fit into a male patriarchy society. How am I helping perpetuate this thing and how am I, what am I doing to rid it, right? And 
I know a lot of people who, for lack of a better way of saying this, are, are, are perpetuators of, of this thing, right? I mean, we all do. If, you, if you're a guy, you know, mm-hmm. you know. And I actually had, to, I actually called Tia Fuller. She's, a, she's been a good friend throughout the years. She's helped me out through a lot of trials and different, she's helped me through quite a bit of, of uh, accomplishments and different things. So I called her and asked her if she, if she felt it would be okay for me to include all guys in, in, in the core band and what she thought. She said, you know, use it as a teachable moment. You know, when you get them in the studio, talk to them about it, let them know what's happening. And and that's what we did. We actually had a camera crew. We, we spoke to them about, you know, the music, the, the people behind the music. My wife came in and interviewed and let, you know, let everybody know what was happening. Every tune that, that has been written in dedication to someone musically reflects what was happening in their, in their life or what happened in, in, in and, and I, I wanted them to know that. And it was an educational moment. It was an educational moment for everyone. It was a, it was a bit awkward at times, but I, Alan, I wanted the music. I don't want, I never want my music to, I never want the concept I should say of my recordings to overshadow the musical content. Yes. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because uh, I was just thinking along that lines because not only was this a uh, a release that had message in the music, when you did that, it didn't just lay there on the table as some sort of activist uh, piece of music, but instead it received widespread acclaim for just how fantastic the music was. I appreciate that. I'm glad that people are are digging the music. <laughs> it really it means a lot to me that people enjoy the music. That's 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 very important. Imagine if John Coltrane loved Supreme. If imagine if the music was sad, <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about Love Supreme. Imagine if the music uh, on on we insist Max Roach, we insist Sweets. Imagine if the music wasn't happening, we wouldn't be talking about it, right? So I want to, like I said, I want to, I don't want the concept to completely overshadow the music. Right. And that was my plan. And, and I'm, I'm glad that people are enjoying the music and hopefully they'll, they'll take time to, to, to open up the liner notes and, and, and do a bit of research. And that's what it's all about. And I, I think that's important because it gives you a greater respect for the music and you start listening for those things, those concepts and issues uh, and then how it relates to the music itself and is picked up in either the melody or the beat uh, or the presentation of it and the way it, it is arranged. Like, for example, tell me about You Are Never Far Away From Me. Okay, so that was a tune that Perry Como made famous. That was, his, that was actually his theme song. He was singing that at the end of the show. Those of you who are familiar with Perry Como, oh, Old school crooner. I learned about him through Paula West. Shout out to her. Accompanying dozens of singers, you learn about so many artists that and, and great singers and songs and different things. So I wanted to record You're Never Far Away From Me because of the lyrical content. And I wanted people to know, those who are, are the most vulnerable in our society, my sentiments are what those lyrics are. You are never far away from me. Right? You're always in my heart. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to feature two bass players. I wanted to feature uh, uh, India Owens with with Christian McBride. Right, she's up and coming. Christian McBride is an established juggernaut of this of this music, mm-hmm. and I wanted to give her opportunity to immortalize sharing the stage with 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 him. And I, I felt like it was significant. I felt like that that was significant having having uh, India perform that with Christian and and also the sentiment of just letting these people know queer people from the, the LGBTQ plus I plus communities that. You know, I, I see you, I hear you, and I'm not. This is this is something that you're 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 in my heart, women, women of color. I'm here, and I'm of service. Well, you know, I, I think that speaks well of you. Uh, not only are you bringing these issues to the forefront, but uh, you're also talking about two bass players. One was who is a rising star, and yet you took that moment out of your recording. And uh, and I'm sure uh, with the embracing agreement with Christian McBride on uh, including uh, this person as a, an up and coming bassist, I, I think it shows uh, a respect for you wanting to be inclusive and wanting to bring someone else along, because th- this music is only going to continue to exist through a legacy that we create now and where it goes for the future. Absolutely. And this is something that Christian understands. He has a clear understanding of that. And this is, this is, you know, Alan, there's like thousands of unsung rules in this, in this, in this music and in, in culture in general, in art in general, there's, there's, there's legacy and there's, and there's passing things along, not, not hoarding information, not hoarding your, your talent, not hoarding, inf- you know, what you, your, your, your skills, you, you want to pass things on because we want to, we want to see this, this music, we want to see it stand the test of time, and that's one way that it happens. Well, it's a matter of giving back, and, and I think that's important for everybody uh, to give back where you can and make a difference and create a future for not only the music, but to genuinely give somebody an opportunity to enjoy a life through their music or through their art and be productive people for the future. What a great thing to leave behind for you. Amen to that. <laughs> so, but, but that brings me to the subject of the fact that you are very much involved in education. You passionately conduct yourself, not only musically, but also within clinics and lectures and so forth. And you, you do this in many different forms and venues and forums. You also uh, work, uh, as you list yourself, as a resident conductor at Juilliard. That's right. I'm the big band, resident big band conductor at the Juilliard School. So you're, you're giving back, uh, in other words. Uh, and and I, I, I'm sure that's part of the intent of your being actively involved in uh, these educational pursuits. Absolutely, Alan. It's, it's I've always enjoyed teaching and and educating. I, I, I from years ago when I was twenty and a part of coaching drum lines at, at in in local high schools in Cleveland and Columbus, Ohio, and very various other educational you know exploits that I've been doing that I've done in and out of schools. 
I love to teach and the art of it really intrigues me. It's, it's, it's like, it's an art, which means you have to study it and you have to have different ways of conceptually doing it in order to be successful. It's not like a one size fits all. And I like being challenged in that way. It's, it's just like music. One size does not fit all. You got different symbols for different gigs and different size drums for different gigs and different things, depending on the sound you're going for. You have to have that approach when you teach as well. And I, I discovered that, understood it at uh, early on, and it's, it's kept me busy and occupied, and I love to do it. I love to do it, and yes, it, it, it's, it's important for me at that, at that particular level, at the, at the collegiate conservatory level to not only, I have to couple musical excellence, I should say, with challenging my students to contextualize everything that they learn musically, culturally, and historically. It's very important. And that's a part of you know, my, my teaching package that, that, I've, that I've been bringing to the table. Well, you not only do this in, in a uh, academic setting, uh, in a formal school, but you are also one who gives back to the community. And one of the communities uh, that you're close to and connect with is Jazz House Kids. Uh, what, what a great and an amazing organization that this is, especially for grooming young musicians for uh, a life ahead that includes music. Absolutely. This is an organization out of uh, Montclair, New Jersey. Their headquarters are there. Uh, Melissa Walker is the president who I've had the privilege of working with before Jazz House Kids was was even this big of a of of a influential uh, entity within this music, and I've seen it grow and grow and grow. And I've been doing things with them, teaching teaching drums. Yesterday I had my students on Zoom, and it's been it's been great. It's been great to see these students grow and learn, and like you say, take this music and be a part, hopefully, of the legacy of of of, of it. And, and take it to another level. Well, it's not only good for the kids to work with somebody like yourself, who is uh, an established uh, and, and certainly uh, viable, well-known talent in the business, but uh, they get to enjoy your personality, your outlook on life, uh, and, and a sharing of ideals uh, and music together in, in so many ways. So, uh, here's a, a, a fun question for you. What about when you're in this setting and you're working with a lot of kids? What do the kids teach the teacher? <laughs> That's a great question, Alan. You just went south, Paul. Me, that was a, that was a move in the in the twelfth um, in in the sixth round. You, you <laughs> just went south, Paul. Gave you the roundhouse, did I? <laughs> what I learned from from students is that. Two or four years in an institution doesn't necessarily mean that student is unable to grasp concepts, right? I think it's I think it's kind of I want to say disservice because as long as they're learning, it's a it's good for them, right? That's how I approached school when I was there, and I I, I assume it's that like that for them. Um, but when you put a time limit on understanding a concept. It can be, it can it can be a bit discouraging 
to a student who is who is not grasping the concept quicker than his his or her colleagues. And I, I feel that I'm learning patience teaching students. I'm learning patience. I'm learning that the temperature of of where we are right now in 2020, it's much different than 1995 in terms of mentality and social media is such a major part of students' life right now. And I kind of took that for granted. I didn't realize that, I mean, it had to be brought to my attention. Some of these students, most of my students, if not all of all of my students, they don't know what it's like to not have internet, right. to not have Facebook. Some students were born when Facebook came on the scene. And that boggles my mind. They don't know what his life is like without it. So I have to go about the way that I teach, the way that I instruct. I have to find new ways of, of teaching and new concepts on how to relate information. And I'm constantly learning from the students that you have to find another way. They're not telling me that directly, but just by the response, by the response. Right. It was one way when I was coming up, like either you learn it this way or that's it. You're, you're not going to get it. And that's not that's just not how things can work these days. No. And, and, and it's so much vanity now. So much vanity, more than it, it has ever been. Inse- insecurities and that sort of thing. And I think I think the Internet has a bit to do to do with that social media. I do. It does, and and but it's it's how you deal with it. Uh, you can you could take it and get consumed by it, or go down the rabbit hole, or you can rise above it and take from it things that would be valuable to you uh, within your context of of being. And and I don't mean to get esoteric here, but it just. Uh, it's it's a take it or leave it kind of proposition, uh, but you sometimes need to have that centering or someone like yourself who is an educator. And like most educators uh, in life, I, I think for all of us, uh, we can all look back on teachers that we had in various subjects, whether it was science or woodworking shop or wherever, where we took away something more than just a lesson about the Spanish language for the day or how to conjugate a sentence, uh, et cetera. But instead, we learn something about life from that Absolutely. Teacher. I am a proponent for that. Louis Armstrong, he has a famous quote that says, what we play is life. And there's a metaphor around the corner for any musical concept that you can think of, playing as an ensemble, playing as a rhythm section, playing as a, as a section within the ensemble it, it it it's all metaphoric for life right it's it's all metaphoric for life and another thing I, one thing i want to say i learned from students when i hear them play something that's like wow okay that's something different i haven't heard i want you i am i am not against i'm not opposed to learning something musical from my student and i want them to build on it i want them to build on it i want them to i, I want them to, to i want to i want to help incubate that energy, you know, and, and a rabbit hole is not necessarily, I mean, I mean, we talk about the internet, social media, sometimes a rabbit hole can be a good thing. If I'm, if I'm looking up 
Tony K. Bambara, or, or if I'm looking up Rosa Parks, R.G. Lord might pop up. Now I'm going down a righteous rabbit hole, in my opinion. <laughs> you know. You know, I, I got to tell you, Jerome. I, I, you know, we could probably. This is turning out to be the world's longest thirty-minute podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's all good and it's time well spent. Uh, and we've hardly touched on so much of who and what you are and all the things that you do. Uh, I, I probably could go on for hours, but l if you don't mind, let me take a little bit of time and let's talk a little bit about you specifically. In growing up and starting out your life, uh, where did the music come into your life and, and what started that journey for you? Well, music has always been a part of... Uh the fabric of my growing up, my family, any any event, any family get together, barbecue or ride home, is always there's always a radio on, a tape in the in the tape player, the tape deck, later CD player. Uh, my dad would listen to West Montgomery or whoever else in every Sunday morning and play it super loud, and we'd hear it. One time he called me downstairs. I had my little single ply drum set i don't know what it was i can't even remember the name cp drum or something anyways he he, he put on uh <laughs> spectrum and he he said you know billy Cobham. he said why don't your drums sound like this and i i had no idea what i was listening to then he put on then he put on romantic warrior chick korea and i didn't know what was i didn't know what was going on and he was like your drums Make your drums sound like this, and then he ran. And then he went upstairs. <laughs> so it's always been around, Alan. Indeed. So did he push you or inspire you to move toward drums? Yeah, he actually wanted me to play uh, alto saxophone. There was an alto sax in the house. My dad, <laughs> Mickey Craze, my um, my my brother, he played trumpet first, and he was really good. We had an alto saxophone. I think he got it. I don't know where he got it, maybe my granddad or something. And he was like, yeah, you should play, you should play alto sax. And I didn't want to play. I wanted to play drums. Because we were big into um, the Arsenio Hall show. My dad would allow us to watch that in lieu of going to bed early. Arsenio was from Cleveland, Ohio. That's where I'm from. So he, he wanted us to see, he wanted us to see that. See, that, that goes back to my, my consciousness. See, he was, he wanted me to see people doing positive things that look like me so we can have more examples of that i mean i came up during the cosby show i think the cosby show might have been the first show that we saw that with that depicted that kind of family environment a black family yes. in that kind of environment a lawyer doctor and that kind of thing so we we didn't my, my, my parents they did not hesitate to expose their kids to something that they did not see growing up so when you started really getting into the drums, were you sent to your room or were you sent to the basement <laughs> or the garage and say, look, take that thing out there or leave your kit <laughs> set up in the garage, okay? No, no, my, I, I had a set up in my room and then I moved into the basement. My, my, my parents were interesting. My, my dad, you know, he, he would say, you can practice as much as you want whenever you want. Because what's, you know, Alan, what's the alternative? I'm 13, 14, 15 years old. What would you, you know, growing up in, in, in Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, there's an alternative. I could be out outside doing what God knows what. 
So if he hears drums playing in the basement, it means he knows where his kids are. He knows where one of his kids <laughs> is at least, you know. So he 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 always he always encouraged me to play, encouraged us to play music. I had neighbors who would who would say, I heard you playing. I would like I had a hustle. I would like cut cut grass and do different different things to make money. And my neighbor would say, I heard you playing drums and, and I, I like I like what I'm hearing. It sounds like it's getting better. She was every everyone was encouraging. But that's what it's all about, and especially when you can groom that, encourage it, and, and, and make that happen to bring it to the stage uh, that you have honed your skills and have been successful at it. You've played on a gazillion different recordings, uh, for lack of a better description, uh, and uh, I guess that brings in the, the descriptive in your uh, bio where it says that you were a sideman. Not too many people list that when it comes to what they have done in their musical career, but you put that out in the front. Why? Well, Alan, being a sideman is, is just, is, it's an art. It's a different art than being a leader. It's a different art than being a teacher. There's, there's great there's great sidemen and great, great band leaders and great instrumentalists who suck at teaching. Great teachers who suck at playing. Right. Indeed. So I, I feel like I wouldn't say they suck at playing. I'll just say it might not have a lot, but they know how to direct. Right. They know how to direct and mentor, which is which is which is something that's that's major to me. Being a side person, man, woman, there's an art to that because you, you have to be able to make your sound fit into different situations. Now, I'm just speaking musically. You also have to have a certain level of empathy. I know being a leader, I you know, if I come to a gig and I see one of my side folks at the gig hanging out before I can set up, it's a certain solace I have in my heart. It's a certain ease that I feel. So understanding how serious would I want this person to take my music, making time, making making time. That's what that's what uh Bob Cranshaw would always say to me. He's like, You gotta make time, Jerome. Make sure you make time. I see you making time. Good for you. You making time. That means be early. In whatever you do, Hank Jones would be down in the lobby 30 to 40 minutes before lobby call. Being a side man, I take that so serious and I don't take it for granted. Learning repertoire, learning people's repertoire. There's no accident I got with Christian McBride. I knew his music. I knew all of his trio music before I got into that band. So I, I take pride. I take pride in that. I take pride in learning people's music and then putting my little stamp on it and them, and them saying, wow, okay, you learned that. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's the art, you know, the long, that's the long winded answer, Alan. I'm, you know, I apologize for that, but, but it, there's an art to being a side person, a side man, being, being a, a band member. No one has to worry about. There's an art to that. I say, I'm, I'm still a work in progress, Alan. I, I just remember what, when I heard Max Roach and I, and I, I checked his music out and, and got into his liner notes and, you know, it, it, it's always been a, a dream of mine to put into into music how I feel about what's going on in the world. It might not be the most popular stance. This record, Solidarity, being proof of that, there has been some some tension within in the ranks. But I'm okay with that because I'm I'm speaking to something that it's tough for people to speak to because it's still such a a taboo topic to speak about what's happening today and what's been happening. And when you write a tune dedicated to someone who's a, who's, who's a transgender person, you're going to get some pushback. And I'm okay with that. 
I have to be okay. Well, I'm, I'm not okay with it, but I have to be one with it. I have to, I have to know that this is what's going to happen when you do that. Well, you have the courage, the conviction, and the commitment to stand by who and what you are as well. You're more than just a drummer. You're okay with that if, if you take a little heat because you're standing up for your principles and your beliefs. I appreciate you saying that, Alan. I would love to be considered more than just a drummer. Though being a drummer is not a just, it's tough to do. I understand that. But I'm willing to take on the weight. I'm willing to, to do that heavy lifting. I'm okay with that. I will yell until the proverbial cows come home that we need to have a required class in music school that teaches the music and life of Mary Lou Williams. We need to do that. We need to have that. We need to talk about the Sweethearts of Rhythm. We need to read Sherry Tucker. We need we need to read uh, people like Tammy Cronodal and, and, and they, these kind of books that, that deal with not just the music in its musical sense, in its technical sense, but also its social and historical sense. Well, I will tell you, uh, Jerome, that because of people like yourself, we're heading in the right direction. We're taking those steps and moving forward rather than going back. And as we move forward, it will be because of the influence and the legacy that you and others who have stood up for their convictions and beliefs that will bring us to the altar. I appreciate that, Alan. That means a lot to me. I know you spoke to a lot of people. You have a platform. You've been a fan of this music for a very long time. You saying that, I don't, I don't take lightly. I appreciate that. I want everybody to know, too, if they go to uh, www.jeromejennings.com, you can get uh, Solidarity on Vinyl now. We, we have the pressing, so it's, it's here. Well, it's my pleasure, and it's been a distinct pleasure to have you as our guest uh, through this episode. And uh, we truly appreciate your time and look for greater things. And let's leave the door open for another episode with Jerome Jennings, the legend. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with drummer, activist, band leader, composer, sideman, and educator, Jerome Jennings. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Please join us next week for a conversation with Chris Brubeck, the son of legendary Dave Brubeck, and the special centennial release of Time Outtakes. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.